0: hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast it is me steve hall your host as always and on the other end is mike Isratel. how are you doing mike i'm okay how are you i'm absolutely fine um so we'll rock on straight and get into the questions as we didn't manage to get that many answered last time i think we got to one or two (laughs) so the first question is from michael wackel uh i probably said that completely wrong but we'll go with it he has asked why in some exercises mike completely doesn't care about technique like neutral neck spine pelvic tilt etc i think it was a bit of a joke
1: (laughs) okay but it's an opportunity (laughs) for you to
0: that's, it, that's the whole point. question. That is the whole question.
1: Okay. What were the three neutral?
0: So I think it was neutral neck slash spine pelvic okay. so, tilt.
1: So this, I'll just take the, I'll just take these one by one. Uh, neutral neck is a mythological concept made by PTs that don't have any actual work to do, and they make up work by making up conditions. The thing is, unless you have force pressing down or laterally into your neck, which you don't lift with your head, it was barbell. It's on your back. Um, There's actually no force transduction through the cervical spine at all. So where you have your neck is completely fucking irrelevant until and unless your neck posture puts other parts of your back into bad posture because a lot of times you lead with your head and the body follows. So people that look really far down, it's totally cool if you want to tuck your chin as long as your back is at least in neutral spine and possibly in lordosis where it's safe. But if you get kyphotic, if you get a rounding of the back by looking down, which a bunch of people do... Uh, overemphasizing the neutral neck stuff, then that's a bad deal. Uh, so in... Sorry, one second. Oh, this guy popped out a window. So basically, um, you know, if uh, if you look up when, when you lift, uh, it's at best irrelevant because it doesn't matter where you look. And if your back is good, you're fine. But also looking up when you lift, especially at strategic times, actually arches your back more, puts it into either from kyphosis into neutral, or from neutral into lordosis, which is a safer, usually stronger position for the spine, especially safer. You'll also notice that almost every single Chinese lifter lifts exclusively with their head as far into the sky as they can, and you can feel free to argue with them if you'd like, but they kinda know a lot, and they're the strongest in the world. So the neutral neck thing is, uh, this is just make-belief. It's just make-belief, and I'd be, anyone who says different, I'd be, love to debate them. Uh, it's just literal nonsense. So, um, so that's that's easy. Neutral spine is another thing that makes no fucking sense because I don't I really understand the argument against lordosis, right? So, uh, kyphotic spine. So, uh, the intervertebral discs tend to herniate on occasion, which is really bad, right? And they only herniate posteriorly because the posterior herniations, there's no collateral ligament there to protect against it, and it actually bumps right into the nerve roots, and then that's how you have terrible back injuries and sciatica and so on and so forth. So if your back is rounded, it puts pressure on the discs to posteriorly herniate, and that causes all the problems. If your back is arched really hard, the discs might herniate anteriorly, but there's two things to say about that. One, the uh, anterior collateral ligament is fucking massive and super strong and sits right there. You're not gonna break through it. Even if you did, those herniations are asymptomatic because there's no nerve root there. There's no nerve at all. It just goes and just right into the ligament and pops out into your fucking your intestines or something, right? There's just nothing there that's relevant and there's no interference at all. Anterior herniations are asymptomatic. So if someone lifts with a, a, an arched lower back, what you could say is that by engaging their abdominals more, they can create more intra-abdominal pressure by being a neutral spine. Uh, that's a good thing, but if you wear a lifting belt, you can create intra-abdominal pressure by cinching it tight, breathing in, and then that creates intra-abdominal pressure while you're still having arched back. If you're a power lifter, the leverages of the low bar squat demand that you probably keep your spine closer to neutral and away from lordosis because of that ability to engage your glutes a little bit better. And you don't have to squat super deep as a power lifter, so you're not going to round your back doing that. And also, you need a ton of intra-abdominal pressure, even with the belt. So for powerlifters uh, with low bar squat, I would, I would highly recommend that they brace in the convention or the, the new way or whatever people are doing it where they brace their abs down. But at the same time, you should not want to round your lower back. And a bunch of people who say embracing, they just round their lower back and they tighten their abs up and that's actually a really good way to get hurt. You'll feel great the entire time and then and then you'll get hurt. Uh, so for those, but for people involved in hypertrophy training and almost every weightlifter, you can actually see how weightlifters squat, Olympic weightlifters, they all squat almost exclusively with a lordotic back. Mm-hmm. Like just, they squat straight up and down. The chest up is a cue in weightlifting. And apparently uh, the wrong cue, I've been giving it for years, I apparently don't know what I'm talking about. People say ribs down is a cue. You know what that means really, but you know, it just means crunch your abs and generate a lot of intramural pressure As yeah. so long as you're not wrong. I think it's totally fine. It's great for powerlifting. Uh, I see a lot of guys – and this is actually an interesting mythology. I see a lot of physique people squatting their reps like their power lifter. So they'll get to the top of the rep and go – and they'll squat and up. and That's just a way to like just really enhance systemic fatigue. Um, Hypertrophies your core pretty well, but I don't think that's what squats are for. I prefer squatting with a belt and staying more upright, having my knees come more far forward and squat like a weightlifter with relatively lordotic lower back. By the way, squatting lordosis does not predispose you to injury. If anything, it keeps you the furthest away from kyphosis, so it doesn't do that at all. And as for the pelvis stuff, posterior pelvic tilt is butt wink. It is your pelvis rounding, which can actually round your uh, lower back and cause herniation. Anterior pelvic tilt is your pelvis rounding to create an arch lower back. It does not get you hurt. Anterior pelvic tilt is a bad idea if you constantly live in extension and walk around with your chest up. It actually tends to fatigue the muscles of your spine and shortens them unnaturally, and that can cause wear and tear, especially if you're a runner or something like that. But as a position in lifting, almost every weightlifter that is the bottom of a snatch, bottom of a clean and jerk, everything, the entire setup is anterior pelvic tilt. It actually pre-tightens your hamstrings for you. Does it limit the range of motion of the lift? Yes. But if you want more range of motion, you literally are saying to yourself, I'm going to round my pelvis under to get lower. Uh, is that a good idea? If your lower back doesn't round, sure, but it might, right? So people say, well, you're restricting your range of motion. Yeah, so my back doesn't round. And then the other thing is like you lose glute activation. I don't squat to get glute activation. I squat for my quads. That's the purpose of the exercise and hypertrophy training. I do plenty of other shit for my glutes. My glutes are fucking enormous. This is not a problem. actually you know very few bodybuilders for who glutes are a little you know, like, oh he needs bigger glutes. Like usually it's just not a thing because they get so much volume from everything mm-hmm. you do, but it's just not an issue. So uh, all the lifting that I do all of the positions that I take are actually completely defensible. And usually when people have problems with them, they're coming from a place of just sort of like assuming these uh, kind of like shibboleths for lack of a better term, like all oh, this, like this, like you've got to pack your neck. What the fuck, what the yeah. fuck does that mean? It's just it's, so somebody just made that up for no good goddamn reason. Um, and, and that's, that's the thing. So and mind you lifting like that, those other ways, is totally cool too. As long as your lower back is not kyphotic, there's no problem. That's all that shit leads to. If your lower back is neutral, sweet. If it's lordotic, sweet, right? Uh, and I would love to get a caricature of someone who thinks lordotic spine is uh, makes someone prone to injury. I would love to see just the mm-hmm. mechanisms. Apparently, I just don't know enough biomechanics for that sort of thing. So,
0: there's Fantastic. My rant down there. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I don't know if um, if you're in lordosis, say, and you move into neutral, is that okay still? Or is that showing any signs of form breakdown?
1: Uh, well, so you, is neutral okay? Yes. Is lordosis okay? Yes. Then mm-hmm. yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> if you move into kyphosis, that's really bad. It, it, here's another thing. People are really like, um, they for some reason made this rule that you you can't transition from one good thing to another mid-lift. Uh, they're like, well, your back's rounding. I'm like, no, it's not. They're like, well, it's moving from really arch yeah. to not arch. I'm like, mm-hmm. Which one of those is bad? They're like, well, neither. I'm like, so what the fuck is it a problem? I mean, like, you're essentially getting an eccentric contraction, of your spinal erectors that makes your spinal erectors bigger and it's through a technically safe range of motion now would i like it if i could stay arched the entire time yeah it's just not not that flexible but i'm flexible enough to at least be neutral at the bottom there's yet to be a youtube video of me rounding my lower back at the bottom of a squat and if someone if i finds one of those i will happily take the critique that that is a bad squat so uh yeah just uh, i don't know i don't know man people say stuff and <laughs> I got I, I don't know. Yeah,
0: I, I think it that is the case because I often will purposely lord go into lordosis and arch because I know it's gonna like fall into neutral. So if I at least start in a really arch position, exactly why arch? Why like I'm more likely to go start neutral in kyphosis rather than if I arch and 100%. go neutral.
1: One of the things is like I'm not particularly athletic. Um, and I have a real hard time, especially with heavy weight being – having an awareness of what my hips and lower back are doing. So the reason I do that hip tilt at the, at the beginning of each squat, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone because it's not a problem. It's not a problem. I push my hips forward just to figure out where the wrong way is, and then I can figure out the reverse is the right way, and then I go down. I intentionally arch just like you in order to make sure that I'm not accidentally rounding because if people say, why don't you just brace and go down? I mean I tried that. It just ended up rounding my back more often. I'm just not willing to to to, to try that sort of thing. I actually – did lift like that for a while and that's when i herniated one of my discs so yeah exactly yahoo
0: brilliant so we'll get to the next question which is from morton morty that is his name mm what's been the biggest things you've learned during the last off-season slash growing phases and what have you learned during the cutting phase? I guess we covered the cutting phase last podcast, which people really enjoyed, but you could add. Um, and he also asked anything you have changed your mind on regarding training, nutrition, or recovery modalities. Um, during the last growing phase,
1: that was a long time ago. I'm actually going to be starting my another growing phase uh, here in a couple of days. Fish and chips. Um, it's the massive yeah, right. <laughs> Exactly. Actually, it was the last night I couldn't sleep. And I was watching uh Brian Shaw, Eddie Hall and um, one, what's his name? One other guy, a really, really big guy. Um, anyway, strong men. Um, they were doing an eating challenge in the UK, <laughs> at, like a diner and holy shit. Like I forgot that these people just eat. It's unbelievable. Like, you know, I'm like at the end of a crazy diet where I have glute striations. So I'm like, feel, you know, I could eat. And I'm like, Holy shit. Like, <laughs> At some point, I was like disgusted. Not disgusted, but I was like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't right. So the fish and chips diet, yahoo. <laughs> um, so uh, lessons from the growing thing. I tried at one point to rush some weight on, and I, in retrospect, I gained just mostly fat doing that. So that was stupid. So slow and steady is the way to go. Uh, within the numbers I usually give, you know, mm-hmm. quarter percent to half a percent per week. And um, I'm a big fan of getting some exercises together and running them multiple mesos in a row now and cycling through the volumes up and up and up. Um, and the weights, of course, there's a momentum element there that I used to underappreciate. So I've changed my mind about that. And that's, you know, kudos to Broderick Chavez and Eric Helms and other folks. Um, so, for example, my hack squat. We had a, a specific machine we have at Iron Sport here in Philadelphia. I was started out doing like 335 pounds for sets of like 15 or so on average. That was like a year and a half ago, and at the end of this last cut, I did 525 for 11. Wow! And a lot of that is neurological adaptation, yeah. but a lot of that's not, and a qualitative visible size difference in my quads my quads are shaped differently like my quads have their own extra taper now cuz there's just so much muscle there that it just wasn't um so that was a really cool feature um and uh what else the i can't the, you know i keep trying to get away from pull-ups and bent rows but i can't cuz it just works so goddamn well um, uh, the cambered bar row is just something that I just love, uh, to infinity amount, um, stuff like that. Um, yeah, as far as I'm trying to think of diet stuff, I'm gaining, um, uh, slow and steady. I only cheated twice a week during my gaining phase, uh, Friday night and Saturday night. Um, and that was, uh, more than sufficient because I wasn't super hungry towards the end. And it's almost all, it was almost all clean food, uh, which is cool. I kept a lower fat amount, which is good. Uh, and I put on a lot of muscle, so that was really sweet. Um, here's another thing. This is going to be making the rounds. It's already starting in the literature, but this is a prediction by, by a couple of people. Broderick Chavez is one of them that is panning out really well now. Is that muscle gain is actually a really complex process that, that can take months not in the sense of months to a creep, but in the sense of months to realize the full physiological potential of a mature muscle cell. And uh, there's probably a part of muscle growth that is an expansion of supportive structures and then part partly an expansion or a filling in of supportive structures with contractile elements and various other machinery and a recycling of satellite cells, so on and so forth. So one thing that both myself and Jared Feather have noticed is that uh, we gained a good bit of muscle in our off-seasons but as prep continued for like contest diet or just really hard diet, there is like a maturation effect where like we just at some point just didn't lose nearly as much weight as we thought we would. would, And we just kept getting stronger. And it's like almost a realization of muscle gains. Right. Um, and then lots of people have reported this. Uh, and now we're just starting to find out in the literature how this potentially works. So what I would say is a consistency in training uh, relatively hard and with high volumes throughout most of your phases can allow you to realize muscle growth that you sort of had put in your back pocket, had preempted, and then only later does it happen. So a lot of people, I think, and this is more a psychological tool. People get into a hard diet and think, like, "I'm just trying to conserve muscle." That's actually not true. You could still be putting in the finishing touches on an, on the on the apparatus that was established months ago in the gaining phase. And if you continue to train hard, MEV to M R V, and of course the window will be smaller, especially as an intermediate and, and even an advanced athlete. You can make actual gains during that time that are not reflected on the scale, but I don't know if you've had this experience, Steve. You sort of die, 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 and you're, you're getting actually a little stronger during the diet or not losing any strength, and then as soon as you start massing back up, like you're like fucking huge. You're like, well, I was never this big at the, the end of the last mass. Like, what the fuck happened? And it's not just glycogen supercompensation. It's just the realization that you actually now have more contractile tissue, and it wasn't as hydrated for a while, but it kept growing the entire time. So I would say that like, you know, muscle gain is something that occurs over months and months and months and not necessarily like one of those like, oh, this week I gained this much muscle. Like it's not sand in a sand pile seemingly. So that's kind of cool to know.
0: Cool. Is that I guess that's part of the reason you guys promoted the resensitization phases was kind of like because if you go straight into a cut, you might not realize as much of the muscle mass totally i think so
1: yeah yeah the resensitization phase basically lets you hang out at a new high body weight and maybe hammer in the contractile elements just a bit more
0: fantastic and then in terms of so you did yeah massing cutting anything else on cutting from last time i think it was mostly just taking your time was a big one
1: taking time i just finished my cutting phase it was 16 weeks long uh, it wasn't supposed to be 16 weeks, but it ended up just well, still things are still happening, so it kept going. Got super fucking lean as the pictures have shown, and I didn't think my quads had that many veins in them, but there they were. Um, so it's kind of cool. It, it you know most of the time the macros weren't crazy. I was only really hungry sort of towards the end, and I never did any more. The last couple of last week I did more cardio just to experiment with some peaking stuff. But I never consistently, did, almost the entire time, I only did 300 calories of cardio on the elliptical four days a week. I oh, was wow. doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well, but huh. not a ton of it. Um, it just, you know, I would trying try to be physically active, but also I mostly sit in this chair all day long and just like write algorithms or whatever. So I, um, it, it was just really cool to see how with plenty of food and not crazy cardio, my leg size never fucking budged. I never lost any muscle, and I used to lose muscle on my legs like. Significantly, because I would do way more cardio, my legs would come down in size notably during cuts. And this isn't like well, a sports supplements thing. Like that was more sport supplements, <laughs> and it still happened, right? And you see this with guys in the pros. Like they their legs will shrink, and they're like, "Ah, it's just part of diet," and maybe not. Um, I think that you know, taking it slow and steady. And I'll put it to you this way: if you diet for twelve weeks, but you do shitloads of cardio and you eat less you're going to end up with smaller legs than if you diet for 16 weeks and do none of the crazy cardio and you eat more the whole time. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Yeah, there seems to be that people end up taking the slower is better route Almost like at face value, and like, well, there's that sweet spot of if you're too short, like you said, you end up sacrificing things. But if you go even longer, there's probably a diminishing returns and efficiency it's losses. It's And stage. there's
1: like, if for sure, well, it's a huge efficiency losses, and also uh, potentially another psychological barrier where you're just dieting for so long that you just, I god damn, it just defeats you psychologically. It's not that, it's almost like that. There's an element to restriction. As I said this before, there's an element to psychological restriction of dieting. That it's the restriction period that is the psychological cost. So here's what I mean: if you're in jail, but it's a jail with flowers and friendly staff, and you get to play sports outside, but if the ball rolls to the fence, you see the fence and you can't leave, you're still in jail. So if you have to stay in a really shitty prison for like a week, um, you know, you promise no one's gonna fuck you out, but it's gonna be scary and the floors are dirty and whatever. Versus like a really nice jail for a month, yeah, you might just want to go to the shitty jail for a week. Cause really nice jail for a month, still in jail. Yeah. And in, when you're cutting, people say, "Oh, I'm on a diet break." Like, like I think you call them deficit breaks, right? Like it's not a diet break. Yeah. You're, not, you're not a break from the diet. You still have to watch your shit. And that watching your shit, that pressure, it adds up. It adds up. And when you got like a 32 week prep, that could work. But boy, that's a long-ass time. Maybe if you found a way to condense it to 24 weeks or 20 weeks and made it a little bit harder, maybe maybe there's some middle ground to be had there.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think also when people make it so long, they take it way more relaxed at the start and they end up having to rush at points. I just find when you actually get, do it in like a, we only have this much time, people get their sure. act together much, much better. For sure. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Cool. Let's get to the next question. So that's from Brian Borstein, and he has asked, when Mike travels, he is always having to use different pieces of equipment than what are programmed in his current mesocycle. He has been pretty explicit that the objective is to choose a few different movements for each body part and hammer them for two to four mesocycles, then replace them. So what are his thoughts on the impact of this unintended variation on the progression slash overload of mesocycles and the effect on his volume landmarks?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. So when I come home between travel, I'll tend to use the same pieces of equipment at home. And what I'll do is I'll extend the length of time I use my home equipment if I travel than if I don't. So if I don't travel, maybe I'll do leg presses for two mesocycles straight and then switch to hack squats. If I'm traveling a lot during those mesocycles, I might do leg presses for three mesocycles straight and be like, well, why? The number of total leg press sessions is still the same. I just do more sessions away from the leg press when I travel. So I essentially have the same net sum variation within a, mac- a macro cycle. It's just either it's spread out for longer with the same exercises or with peppered in other variants, or it's a couple of transitions with the same number of variants, but I could do these and then I do these if I don't travel. The traveling does present a little bit of a challenge, but uh, it's not a huge challenge Uh, Because, again, I think muscle growth has that long-term momentum sort of thing to it where if you come back to the same leg press even every two weeks or whatever and you hit a little bit of a PR, hit a little bit of a PR, hit a little bit – I think that really does add up. And the technical abilities and neurological foundations of executing that movement, they hang in for a while. So like if you even leg press the same thing every two weeks – you're still pretty proficient at it. And you start to build that momentum of figuring out how to raise your stimulus to fatigue ratio, your, your technique, your mind muscle connection does improve even with that sparse of practice. And then, you know, I'm at home a little bit more than every two weeks considerably more. Usually I travel weekends, but a lot of times every week, I'll still get to do most of the machines. So what actually ends up happening is like, I'll have like three or four, four of my training days, basically are just at home all the time. And then my sort of weekend end of week training days, They tend to be like for several weeks on end, almost exclusively on the road. Then what I'll do is I'll try to find really close analogs of exercises on the road. And here is this, it can't, it doesn't get any more beautiful than this. The beauty of RIR, right? People say, how do you pick the weights? Well, I have my three intensity ranges, which I'll be talking about in the book coming out next year, the five to 10 rep range, the 10 to 20 rep range, and the 20 to 30 rep range. They all have their distinct purposes. And where you are in those ranges really doesn't matter much in the grand scheme. And then I have my reps and reserve target. I mean, fuck me. It's not that hard to warm up and pick something that is in the 10 to 20 range and also gets me to a two RIR. And look, Let's say two RIR got me to 22 reps. All I do is take the stack and put it in the ooh, 10 kilos down, and, and then I'm good for the next set. It's just a one-set error. It's barely an error. That's still hard training. You know what I mean? Yeah. So training on the road, if you have percentages and exact weights and I have to use this machine, you're going to have a real tough time training on the road. But for hypertrophy training, it's easier. And this is why it would huge. that you and I, Steve, always talk about understanding the principles. You understand that what matters is getting in volume, and you understand that getting in volume has to have in the context of a low, relatively low 4 to 0 RIR, and that the repetition ranges should roughly co- correspond to whatever your target is. Fuck, man. They're like, well, your pull-down machine is different at your home gym than this one. How do you adjust? I'm like, those three things. Yeah. I make sure it's in the rep range that I want. And the number of sets is the same, number of hard sets, and the RIR is my target. I, mean, I can figure that out in two minutes doing three warm-up sets on a machine. Problem solved right? Uh, And and does the extra variation help? Probably not. But does it hurt? Probably not a ton, as long as your base meat and potatoes, those constant variants when you're at home, still propagate. And and even then, it's a a relatively moot point. Remember, variation is ranked relatively low on its effects. So even if I was never at home, which is not the case, um, and I just did new equipment all the time, uh, I would still grow muscle super well, but pro bodybuilders do it all the time. They literally yeah. just trade exercise all day. The they grow fine. Could they grow better if they had some constancy? Totally, but it's you know it's a very small point. What I would hate for someone to do is to get sort of you know um, paralysis uh, by analysis and be like, well, "This isn't the right pull down machine. To up. I'm not trying. I'm not going to train." It's okay. like Jesus Christ, do this until you get tired. Do that five times, boom, your last mTOR has been stimulated, I promise. And it's fun. It's cool to be able to try out new pieces of equipment and shit like that. Although I will say it's sometimes frustrating when you show up to a gym. I've had this happen a couple times. I don't know if you ever have. You like see a gym and you know, it's by your hotel or something. And you're like, oh boy, man, they have a leg press and a hack squat. And you try every piece of equipment and it, it all sucks. <laughs> you're like, oh, this hack squat's broken. The leg press range of motion sucks. And sometimes, like the leg press, instead of pointing straight down, it like arcs up and away from your feet. You're like, oh, this literally designed around my back. So sometimes you're like, just like, man, this fucking blows. But you always have barbells and stuff. That's the great thing about, again, about barbell movements. You don't need shit. You just need a barbell, and that's it. You're good to go. So a lot of times, like if all if all fails, barbells. Another cool thing is cables. I do a lot of cable work when I'm traveling because any anytime fitness yeah. or whatever I has a fucking cable station. Do some fucking cable curls. Do some lat pull downs. Do some cable rows. They have dumbbells. You can always do dumbbell rows. It's not super complicated. And like I've got a variety of quad stuff that I do when I'm on the road when there's like not a good rack available or a good bar or something you just pick whatever leg press machine they have and you do however many rep, uh, sets it takes for roughly 20 to 30 reps per set to get to 100 reps. I mean, you're fucked up. And then you do bodyweight lunges until you're like super shaky, which is like 50 lunges in a row with no break. You're done. Your quads are done for like half a week. So there's always these techniques. Training hard is not that hard. So you can always train hard on the road. Making it as similar as possible to your program is good, but I just wouldn't get too carried away with it and too obsessed.
0: Yeah, no, brilliant. I think... Whenever I have to do it, I'm the same. It's just like, you've got your sets, you've got your repetition range, you've got your RAR. If it's a horizontal row, go and find a horizontal row. There's plenty. There's like a
1: thousand of them. Yeah,
0: 100%. Cool. So we get to the next question and this is from Iron Nick and he has asked, is there a point in building a strength base for clients who only care about building muscle? Most of the older generation talk like it's a necessity. Is there any truth to this or is this them just being macho?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. It's probably mostly macho. But sometimes being macho accidentally stumbles on the truth. Um, I this it's something that uh, has racked the brains of many of us. Um, Eric Helms has spoken about it. It's just difficult for us to figure out how getting stronger would make you bigger. Now, getting stronger is a symptom of getting bigger. But getting bigger is a matter of motor unit recruitment and stimulus. And if you're relatively weak, it just takes you less weight to do the same thing. So, you know, I can imagine a scenario. Here's a little interesting thought experiment. Imagine that you really thought that getting stronger was the key to getting bigger. And you were presented with Andre Milanichev, who wanted to get bigger quads. And he has squatted, you know, 400 for sets of five kilos like would you have would you get him stronger and then let's say that you're like well he's strong enough like okay you put him on the leg press he's gonna have to leg press some unbelievable amount of weight to get close to failure with whatever rep range he's doing that's just more stress on the joints and stuff like that but is that a bad thing no he's fucking strong it's cool but it's like uh, i think here's another example larry wheels like for larry wheels to have a good bodybuilding workout and get close to failure in every rep range He's just going to be lifting these ungodly weights. Like, imagine he was doing close-curve benches for true sets of 25 with good technique to failure. He would be using like 315 pounds. His joints are joints just like everyone else's. Now, of course, they're made of fucking steel or whatever, but gee, that adds up. Are there bodybuilders bigger than Larry Wheels? Yeah, most pros. Um, are they as strong as him? There's not a single pro as strong as him it doesn't stop them from being bigger because their muscles still get the huge stimulus because the stimulus seems relative. So if someone was to ask me is there a good idea to is there a good idea to build a strength base um for clients I I can't I would love for that to be true it sounds mm-hmm. cool. I heard did it. But uh I can't be a skeptical scientifically based person and say that with a straight face because it's just not in evidence. Um one thing that i do uh, we do recommend in the again as a troll post at this point but scientific principles of hypertrophy training is that folks should spend the majority of their beginner development in the 5 to 10 rep range and that is really close to the strength rep range uh, and not in the 10 to 20 or the 20 to 30 but that's for usually other reasons like a 5 to 10 rep range is really good for teaching how to do movements and being aware of technique. You know, as soon as you, you, you train plenty of beginners, as soon as you let them do more than 10 reps, it's just a matter of them cranking the the reps and they get tired and the technique just goes straight to hell and 20 to 30, Jesus, forget about it. They're just doing, doing whatever. So, uh, you know, there's other reasons for going heavier, but again, if someone was like, yeah, so five to 10 reps for beginners, I'd be like, yeah, it's predominant rep range. But if someone was like, okay, what about sets of like three to five? I'd just be like, "Mm, yeah, like, and again, there's, we can go right to the direct literature. It's been studied, sets of three to five versus sets of like rough five to ten. People at five to ten just, just straight up grow more muscle. So if you're going to tell someone, hey, you've know, you got to establish a strength base, and they go, okay, why? You just be like, ah. And they're like, isn't, will I just not gain as much muscle for a while? And you're like, yeah. They're like, so what's the benefit? And like, well, it makes you strong. Like, okay, so you can lift more weight later. I'm like, Okay. Why do I want to lift more weight? Because more weight makes you stronger, like, or makes you bigger. It's like, mm, I thought volume makes you bigger in whatever rep range you're training. Like, yeah, I'll go back to square one. Yeah. So maybe there are potential discoverable mechanisms in which that, there's actually some validity to that. But, but again, and, and another quick reminder, if we're saying the five to 10 rep range is a recommended range for learning good technique and uh, building lots of muscle for beginners, uh, you know, makes. Staying in the five to 10 rep range while you uh, neurologically adapt and develop a ton of strength means putting way more weight on your lifts. You know, like we're not talking about taking beginners and doing sets of 30 and go, like, oh, don't worry about the weight. Even if it was sets of 30, your 30RM goes up by leaps and bounds ev- all the time when you train. There's no getting around adding weight to the bar. You still get stronger. It's just in what rep ranges. So it's really like two separate questions. Should you try to get stronger in training? Of oh, course. Of course, in hypertrophy training, of course. But the next question is, okay, and now, comma, what is the optimal rep range in hypertrophy training? Well, there's probably three, the five to 10, 10 to 20, and 20 to 30. And then, and then anything outside, like less than five or higher than 30, it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. So why would we do that? I don't know. You know the, so there's some food for thought. And again, this is not like a super concrete, like there's no fucking way it works. It just pains the imagination to figure out how the fuck that would be.
0: Mm-hmm no i think it was actually you who first changed my mind on this in terms of i always thought i even wrote an article on it like the bigger the base the bigger the peak in terms of like you build a base of foundation you can like build a bigger muscle and i'm pretty sure that wasn't me kind of just making up it was people like brad schoenfeld i think 3dmj were under that opinion at some point as well and i think their opinions have now changed as you kind of highlighted uh, uh, and you kind of represented it it kind of goes against that stimulus to fatigue ratio like being stronger than just handles totally. a lot of things and that's what you see with a lot of advanced people they're so strong they, they're mrvs and then kind of coming down
1: totally there's and there was inklings of this uh before all of us came to this conclusion one of the inklings was like oh, you got bodybuilders just as big training with lame shit like not so heavy weights like in the basically 20 to 30 rep range these guys were fucking enormous and like i don't know you could tell them they would have been bigger if they would have been stronger but it just i don't there's so many of them there's like this whole school of volume training that was just super high reps and tons of sets and they were the biggest guys on the planet it was kind of like all right well apparently you can't and then you know, Brad, funny enough, was one of the guys to lay the the nail in the coffin. You know, he uh, both summarized and conducted a bunch of the research that says sets of 20 to 30 grow, at least in the short term, just as much muscle. So once that stuff came out, it was kind of like, gee, like, we're telling people that you've got to get really strong in the three to five rep range. Like, you know, what's the rationale? And and then the biggest part was, I think there's like unspoken dogma in a lot of things. And it's not bad, but just like sort of notions. um, is my my favorite economist Fuck, uh, has a favorite economist Thomas Sowell uh, has uh, expounds on this idea of uh, you know there's like hypotheses there's theories there's uh, models and there's something called notions and notions are just p- things people think are true which are so poorly formulated that they're not even hypotheses like it's not even a, an idea so people have these notions are not even stated as a hypothesis so they're never really questioned and one of them was like you got to get strong to get big it was a notion for a long time. And it's such an appealing notion, especially I think to males in general, mm-hmm. and just we're all come on, we're all like fucking brollic, you know, like we're all just fucking trying to fuck shit up. Like that's why we're in this sport. And it just seems like, yeah, it's awesome. And yeah, like there's this notion, like, yeah, yeah, stronger is bigger, great. And then and then but you sit down and you're like, oh, mechanistically, how would that happen? And you look through the mechanisms and you're like, fuck, there's nothing here. And as a matter of fact, there's some arguments the other way. You talk to some other folks, and I think I remember having a conversation with Eric Helms about it. Where I think maybe we're on the same podcast, and I you know, I asked him, and he was like, He had this hmm, he was like, Hmm, it's like, Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. (laughs) It's like, in both of them, you said it, Eric said it for years, Steve. I was a competitive powerlifter for like eight years, like. And I thought that like every time there was a bodybuilder, I used to read tons of Flex magazines. Every time there was a bodybuilder that was winning something, and they said he's a former powerlifter, I was like, <laughs> yeah. "Yes, he's doing it right. Look at those spinal rectors. Everyone's fucking lame." And there was like there was an article by Bob Chicarillo where he was like, "You don't have to squat or bench or deadlift to be huge." And there's a picture of him with those huge quad sweep, and he was enormous. And I was like, "Fuck this guy." And I was like, "Eh." Man, why is he so big, though? You know, like you know, it was, it's its painful to admit. But and, and again, could it be that there's something to the strength base? Potentially, it, it's just um there's a difference between speculation and recommendation. Um, I can speculate that there potentially could be some things. But when you can speculate just as much in the other direction, it's not something you can recommend to people with just like a hi. Yep, do it. It works, you know, because there's a it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe viewers would get a kick out of this. Maybe they can use it themselves if it's maybe it's stupid. I don't know. A lot of times the way I, I think is I have an idea and I think maybe it's right. And then I imagine myself debating someone who's real sharp and them asking me the embarrassing Facebook question that pulls me apart like Thanos reality stone style and me just fumbling. And I've had multiple scenarios like that where I've said stuff. People were like, mm, nope, like Alex Viata, Tim Rowland, the uh, PT from Australia. He's like fucked me up in debate where I was like, fuck, I've just said stuff that just wasn't true and I'm paying for it. So I imagine guys like that asking me, basically shit testing me, like red teaming me, be like, okay, but how can you be wrong? And then if you think like that, as soon as you have a good idea, like, yeah, strength makes me bigger. And then you're like, who in a Facebook debate? How would someone undermine that? If I was debating myself, what would I fucking say? And look, I would say, look, so what exactly is the mechanism by which that happens? And what about fatigue? And what about this? And what about that? And I'd just be like, ah, I'm not winning that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that was not an idea that I can run with. That could still be true, but gee, it, it looks really bad. You know, that's it.
0: I like that. And uh, I, just a question that came into my mind. I don't know if it's a good question, I haven't thought it through hardly enough but the training that gets you maybe the strongest and say that five to 30 repetition training is that the training that will get you the biggest
1: yeah i think so um because so you can think of it another way training outside of the 30 rep range like north of it 35 reps it seems that to generate an insufficient amount of tension to maximize hypertrophy okay So if you were training in the 20 to 30 rep range, but you never adjusted your loads, you would eventually be training in a higher rep range and not even know it. So you quote unquote have to get stronger. or In other words, put weight on the bar just to pull yourself back into that lower rep range. And the same thing could be stated for the other two rep ranges. Like at some point, your sets of 15 are now sets of 25. And then you're out of the 10 to 20 rep range where probably most growth actually is stimulated. And then, you know, specifically for some muscles and faster fibers, fibers, so on and so forth, the five to 10 range is the best. And what used to be your five to 10 RMs are eventually float up to your 12 RMs, 15 RMs, so on and so forth. So if you have all these three weight ranges, it's not so much that the goal is to get stronger in them, it's that by accreting muscle over time and becoming neurologically more proficient, what used to be your five to 10 RMs, etc., float up and start to get outside of their optimality range. So in a sense, you're adding weight to the bar just to continue to keep things maximally stimulative. Um, it's almost like like a combat sport analogy is one of these things like if you train uh, in wrestling or jiu-jitsu with people of a certain skill level, at some point, if those people are just recreational and they're not super improving really fast, at some point you're so good that you just don't get much out of training with them anymore. And, and so somebody could say like, so is the point of really good jiu-jitsu training to try to challenge the best and travel to gyms and really try to train with the top guys? Like, Is there something special about that rolling with the top guys that makes you better? Not really. There's some argument for that too, but a separate point. It's that you're now so good that training with anyone else just isn't stimulative enough. Like that's a thing, you know? So I think that, yeah, getting stronger in those rep ranges is a byproduct of the good training you're having, and if that byproduct accretes enough, it takes you out of those rep ranges, and then your training is not any good anymore, and you have to bring yourself back in, um,
0: nice yeah. i think yeah. th- that would be the long term wouldn't it as well because i guess in the short term you could make yourself stronger in those repetition ranges but you quickly not gain much after that because you're just well, removing sure. fatigue or and performance is going up
1: yes this is all long term absolutely we had actually a great question on rp plus where a gentleman asked you know how do you how are you guys so confident in rir and all these things when strength seems to change sort of on a day to day basis um, and we essentially like told the guy, like, listen, the day-to-day strength chains are fucking irrelevant because you have no idea what component is fitness and what is fatigue, Like, you want to get stronger, take one recovery day. You'll be the strongest ever the next session. Like if you have quads Monday, Wednesday, Friday, take the Friday session, half the volume, half the intensity next Monday, you'll hit PRs. I promise. But if you think, oh, that's good. Well, then you're just showing off now. You know what I mean? It's almost like trying to gain muscle. But like you need to see the muscle too. So you do two weeks of dieting and then one week of cutting and you're like, yeah, Yeah. there it is. And it's like, well, yeah, there it is. But you don't build any fucking muscle because you don't give your body enough time to do that shit. Same idea. So it's definitely something that has to happen over time. And I'll tell you what, psychologically – how it ends up happening is kind of like a huh moment. I'm sure you've had plenty of these. We're just your normal conventional training? I love it. And like, oh, I'm programmed to squat 155 for 10s. Okay. And you do for 10s and your last set you do like 12 and you're like, okay, I guess that's the thing. It's not like I got to get this 12. Like Then you're shooting for your PRs, which is cool every now and again at the end of a meta cycle. But the real way that strength by a muscle size accretes is that you just at some point, you're just lifting heavy weights. You're like, God damn, I guess this is the new yeah. normal. And that's how you know you're more jacked.
0: Yeah, I, I get it all the time where I'm, I look back at my like logbook and I'm like, hang on, this is, I didn't even realize I was like PRing all the time. It How just fun? happened. So, yeah. really cool. Uh, next question you may have actually be able to just direct Jordan Fleming somewhere, but he said balancing recovery whilst also partaking in another sport. He said, anecdotally, he had mentioned BJJ. Does he have any other rec- general recommendations beyond monitor recovery?
1: Um, If you want a really good answer to that question, you're going to want to take a look at the book, um, Recovering from Training by uh, the folks at RP, James Hoffman is the head author. That is uh, 200 and some pages of everything you ever needed to know about recovery and it absolutely deals with multi-sport training, so on and so forth. Uh, How much should I train deals with volume landmarks and has a whole section designed to talk about multi-sport, multi-component training. Um, and my video on YouTube, uh, weight training and BJJ, just type in IsraTel weight training, BJJ or jiu-jitsu, and it's like an hour and 15 minutes of how to balance jiu-jitsu and weight training. And a lot of that, you can just like, sort of erase jiu-jitsu and pretty much put any other sport because a lot of the principles are really, really integrative. Um, that would be best. Uh, th- just the one tidbit I have because I don't want to just give only referrals. I'd like to give some, some kind of an answer. The one tidbit I have is remember that systemic – MRV is a thing, and you can only recover from so much of anything added together. So think about uh, not how much cake can you eat for dessert, but how much you're eating in your salad, your soup, and your main course as well, because there's a total amount of food that you can eat. So if you really want to eat a lot of cake for dessert, you probably should order a really light meal beforehand to give up a lot of room. Same thing with total recovery is... If you are you already lift weights or already hypertrophy train, or already powerlifting, you want to slap another sport onto that, you don't ever slap it onto that. It's, you have this total MRV, systemic MRV. You take away, I know it's crazy, some of your sport training that you do now and you slide in some of the other sport training. And there's a lot of calibration that has to be required to understand, okay, did I do the equivalency correctly? Like how many BJJ sessions really is as fatiguing as how many weightlifting? It's, it's not clear and it can change. But you have to be honest with yourself. The first most important realization, by far the most important, recovery ability is finite. and It is roughly the same week to week, month to month. Uh, it grows and shrinks and there's some stochastic element there where, you know, flutters and up and down, but it's roughly the same. I just hate to see folks who are like, man, I used to power with four days a week and I started jiu-jitsu three days a week on top of that. I can't recover. I'm like, well, oh, fucking shit. You just added three days a week of shit. And they're like, I don't know, like, but, I figure I could do it. It's like, (laughs) man, maybe you could just get rid of at least one. You got to get rid of something because I tell you what, if you were powerlifting and recovering super easily, man, you probably could have been powerlifting six or seven days a week and just like been an unbelievable day. Like, well, no, four days is all I could recover from. So all you could recover from was four days of powerlifting. That was your limit, and you think you could just add three sessions with you? Just where the fuck is that going to come from? It's thinking like, oh, man. If I eat this pizza, I'm completely full and someone's like, Do you wanna order a cake after? And you're like, Totally. <laughs> what do you mean totally? Are you still gonna eat the pizza? They're like, Yeah, I always eat it like, But you don't always eat cake And they're like, Right, okay. So maybe eat half the pizza have half the cake, and then go from there and see how many slices of cake really is realistic based on pizza slices, so on and so forth.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, it seems so simple when you say it like that. Like, I, I, you know that's
1: like the, the whole MRV concept ends up being the fucking simplest thing in the world, but it, in a lot of it, though, a lot of the reason that some folks aren't wise to it is, yeah, it's tough to accept. Yeah. You know, because you want to kind of be like, oh, if I finagle some shit here and there, I've been almost, almost like uh, another stupid analogy for it since you and I are the king of analogies, the kings of analogies across the sea, Steve. <laughs> Um, is like a rocket payload limit, like when you're launching the Apollo spaceship, like the rocket payloads like 50,000 pounds or whatever. You'd be like, well, but if we design that, okay, you can design the ship any way you want, but the rocket only boosts 50,000 pounds. So you, you, if you're going to make more, if you're going to put in one extra satellite to carry up, you're going to have to take another satellite out or another module or the space shuttle is going to have to have less junket. Something has to go because the rocket only pushes so far and the recovery works just the same way. You're Body's recovery systems are finite in their abilities. Like, can they be enhanced with better sleep and nutrition? Of course they can. If you do that, then your MRV total will go up. But a lot of people just slap that extra sport in, and then only retroactively you are like, oh, I should probably sleep more. Good luck. So what I would say is get your recovery modalities in order, figure out your sport training MRV for your one sport, and then when you slide another sport in, just do it slowly and steadily and make more than enough room because it's really good – to be able to like, okay, so I used to power lift five days a week and do zero jiu-jitsu. Now I'm doing 2 jujitsu sessions a week and only three powerlifting sessions. And your guess ends up being like, wow, I actually am recovering super fine. And you end up being able to do four powerlifting sessions a couple months later when you realize it's totally cool. That's great. The other alternative is like you break down and you start to get hurt or you just have shitty training for a long time. Nobody wants that. A little bit less training is almost always better than a little bit too much
0: mm-hmm. training. Brilliant. Do you think you have time for one more question? One or- more, for you. Sure. Cool. So this is from—it's not actually from, but this is his name, Ryu Hayabusa. He's like the—it's a—I think it's a ninja or something on some game that I've never played on Xbox. Anyway, you don't Sounds know it like either, so it's fine. He asked, "Would um, would be interested to hear Mike's thoughts on how much impact, if any, free testosterone levels have on natural bodybuilders' ability to gain muscle mass?" And what they can do if they have low free test and high s h b j and if any possible influences Next question. <laughs> no
1: clue. No clue, but that's a broader, Chavez question. I literally barely know what sex hormone binding globulin is. Not my area of expertise. Free test, I know what free testosterone is, but I always forget if that's the important one or the bound testosterone is somehow important. Or I'd be literally like, I would just love to know the question, Steve, to cool. be completely Let's honest. I wish I knew this kind of shit, but I just
0: have no fucking clue. Yeah. So Roberto Ricardiella has asked, explain overloading days and lighter days in the context of a hypertrophy microcycle.
1: Yeah. Um, so in the context of our hypertrophy microcycle, uh, it's almost all overloading days. And this is something we're very clear about in the new book coming up, but also we were clear about in scientific principles of strength training. Um, uh, lighter days or what we'd call recovery sessions take precedence much more during a strength block and much more during a peaking block where your peak performances at various points are highly important. Like, you have to be on. You don't just squat 300 kilos for a double. you got to be on, and you can't have much accumulated fatigue. So you take a recovery session, and you have this big pulse to health spike, a super big performance, and then recovery, and then spike. And the, it's these spikes that weave together your pre-meet plan because at the meet, you're going to have to lift weights in a very prepared, very low fatigue state if you're always in a high fatigue state, you're simply going to be too weak to lift weights that have the specificity transfer to those weights. Like for example, if you're never, if you're always lifting hard, always overloading sessions, never taking recovery sessions, by the time you work up to let's say 600 pounds for sets of two, that's really like your 2RM. But if you drop fatigue, you might be strong enough to lift 660 for two or 300 kilos. But like that's a big-ass jump, and you don't want to be at a meet, have 660 on your back for the first fucking time where the only thing you've ever had was 600. You might want to do some, like, sort of in your peak, some mini reductions and, you know, mini recovery sessions so that you get 620 on your back, maybe 640 on your back, at least 630. And then, because, you know, Steve, like, technique changes a lot. Perception changes a lot when those 90, to the 92.5 to 100% RM, that's, a, that's 90% of your one RM? Versus 100% is two completely different lifts. So, bridging that gap is, is something that the recovery days have a big thing for, and some of that is in strength training as well. In hypertrophy training, it's not nearly the case, um, but we can use uh, some interesting go-betweens. The, the way we do that in hypertrophy training is mostly through volume manipulation to focus on specific body parts versus others. For example, you may have, you might have two back days a week. One preferentially does 75% of its volume with horizontal pulling and one and 25% vertical pulling. It's a great back session. The next session, is it's stimulative in both planes, but not so stimulative in the vertical plane. The next workout is 75% vertical, 25% horizontal. So you end up having both workouts technically overload. And they technically overload the back, but there's a little bit of a biasing structure so that the specific motor units and connective tissues and so on and so forth that are hit in vertical pulling get a little bit of a break to be hit real hard once a week and just enough to maintain their size or minimum effective volume the other time another really cool way to cycle and this isn't technically a recovery day at all but it is lighter is to do the rep range variation which i've been experimenting with so it works super super well and actually james is experimenting with it now is let's say you train 3 days a week for a specific muscle group let's say quads you train monday, wednesday, friday monday you do sets of 5 to 10 uh, Wednesday, you do sets of 10 to 20 and uh, Friday, you do sets of 20 to 30. The thing is, because you're accumulating fatigue that entire time, uh, you don't want to go heavier and heavier and heavier because your performance would suck more and more. Like if I'm going to be fresh, it's going to be five to 10 that I want to be fresh for, not do whatever. 20 to 30, you just grind out whatever, who cares? Also, your micro tear amount goes up during that time. Like the amount of micro trauma you have goes up. You don't want to have the max micro trauma when you're squatting 5 to 10, because that's how you get hurt. You're probably not going to get hurt squatting or squatting or doing quads for 10 to 20 reps, and you're almost certainly not going to get hurt 20. Can you imagine 20 to 30, 25 reps, and you pull your quad? Jesus Christ, you probably pull it walking if you walk <laughs> fast enough. So it was just going to go one way or another, right? So in any case, we end up with this thing where because we start our weeks heavier and end up going lighter, but it's still overloading in the different rep ranges, we get this uh, uh, no decrement in our ability to perform, And we have an enhancement in safety. Uh, And uh, that way, you know, then Saturday, Sunday, you get two days off instead of one. You're really well healed. And then you have your next week, Monday, starting at sets of five to ten. So in a hypertrophy cycle, we're much more likely to use paradigms like that than we are to use true recovery days. Because it comes back to the earlier point we were talking about. A true recovery session or day is trying to really push intensity like strength. Why? Like your muscles don't so much care that you hit a PR and hack squats, whatever the range was like, oh, that's my best ever set of 15. Yeah, but you took a recovery session to do it. Like, yeah, so, well, you could have just taken another overloading session and also grown muscle in that workout. So uh, the hypertrophy is much more about hammering it in, hammering it in, hammering it in than it is about creating the conditions to really have a good performance and then backing off, which is much more typical of strength than very typical of peaking so so uh, sort of TLDR if someone has a hypertrophy plan and they have a, a ton of recovery work uh, yeah it doesn't yeah. seem like it adds up a whole lot
0: fantastic brilliant Mike I will we'll kind of finish it there and this will probably come out a week after we have finished the London seminar so very much looking forward to that um, it will have gone incredibly well I already know it so <laughs> <laughs> say it here and now and just so people know we talked about kind of RP plus I know the Book for the scientific principles of hypertrophy training isn't out yet, but RP Plus, always linked below. I'm happy to refer so. people there. So, guys, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike, for answering the questions, and we will catch you soon.